कर Hi, everyone, and welcome to Writer Mother Monster. I'm your host, Laura Ehrlich, and our guest tonight is Dorothy Allison. Before I introduce Dorothy, um, as always, please chat with us in the comments, and I'll weave your questions and your thoughts into the conversation. Um, if you are enjoying the episode and Writer Mother Monster, please also consider becoming a patron or patroness to help me keep this podcast going. And now, without further ado, I will introduce Dorothy Allison. Dorothy's novel, Bastard Out of Carolina, was a finalist for the National Book Award, became an award-winning movie, and has been translated into more than a dozen languages. She was an award-winning editor for numerous early feminist and lesbian and gay journals, and her many publications include The Women Who Hate Me, Trash, The Cave Dweller. Dorothy lives in Northern California with her partner Alex and her son Wolf Michael, and describes writer motherhood in three words as exhausted stubborn, exhilarated. Now, please join me in welcoming Dorothy. Hey, baby. Hello. Hi. My perspective, my hair is a mess. That's why it's tied back. <laughs> you look great. And it's so nice to see you. Thank you so much for joining me. This is such a pleasure. You're welcome. Yeah. So, Dorothy, let's just jump right in. Tell me about the three words that you use to describe writer motherhood. They were exhausted, stubborn, and exhilarated. <laughs> well, exhausted seems to be endemic um, to the process of being a mother and the process of being a writer. Um, and even then, in a different way, in being a published writer, which is, oh, God, it's a little bit like running through fire, trying to find rain. Um, and then exhilarated. <laughs> Life is a mitzvah, you know, you never know what's coming. And the best thing you can do is laugh and take a deep breath and keep moving. I find that exhilaration is endemic to the process. <laughs> My little son, our, well, he was a big baby. He was a huge fucking baby. like 10, 12 pounds. And then um, now he's six foot one. He's huge. He's 29 <laughs> years old and I'm 72 and there is no justice. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah, I remember you talking about Wolf Michael. So I um met you for the first time about I was saying six years ago now, um, at the Tin House Summer Writing Workshop. Um and I have to say I wrote this to you in an email, but I found it so overwhelming at first, just being in this crowd of people who were as passionate and who wanted this as much as I did. And I was just like I was so overwhelmed. And then you gave the keynote lecture. And at the end, you said you found your people. These are your people, and you're here together for this experience. And everyone in the audience more or less burst into tears, myself included. And I had to go for a walk and recover from your lecture because you put the whole week, the whole 10 days into a completely different perspective. And from then on, I was like, yes, I'm not here to compete. I'm here with people who love something as much as I do. So I want to say thank you, first of all, for that. I loved Tin House and worked with them for many years. Now they're a publishing house. They've um, foregone the magazine, um, but they just put out really great books. And they're actively engaged in what I consider revolutionary struggle. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Socially conscious, going to make a difference, you know, like mm -hmm. all of us. Absolutely. Yeah, like yourself. So maybe let's start there with revolutionary struggle and revolutionary writing. And I didn't hold up your one of your many books in the introduction, but this one is, of course, very well known and one of my favorites, Bastard Out of Carolina. Um, speaking of revolutionary and socially conscious and activism. Um, so where, did, where should we start with that? Tell me a little bit about, about where you started with your writing where journey. Maybe we'll start there. Oh, I started as a desperate teenager, like, well, um, a desperate teenager with secrets, lots of secrets. Um, I used to try to write, but it was so inherently dangerous to write about everything that I knew, not just about growing up in a huge 
semi-violent working class family, um, but about incest and being raped from the age of five and being engaged in that age old mother daughter dynamic in which I was trying to protect my mother. Mm-hmm. And that meant, um, I could not let her know everything that was going on. It would have destroyed her. And when she discovered it, it pretty much in some ways did. Um, it's too much to put on a child. Like I say, I was five when it started. I did not understand. And I did try to seek help. That did not work out well. <laughs> it's a good thing I got an elaborate sense of humor. And I still think it's miraculous that my uncles didn't kill my stepfather. They tried several times. Um, but I don't know. You put working class men in the room with a bottle of whiskey and a violent man, and it's not going to turn out the way you would want. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So I had all of that. I had all of that in some ways as a barrier to overcome, but also um, as a goad, as a purpose, as a reason to get the fuck out and do something. As much as I loved my mother from from a very early age, eight, nine, ten years old, I was plotting my getaway. But I wasn't a damn fool. I saw what happened to my cousins who just ran, and that was... Tragic and terrible, um, and I wasn't stupid. And I kept being told, oh, you're such a smart little girl. They'd say, you're just the smartest little thing. Oh, how'd you memorize that? You're just amazing. And, you know, when you're a working class kid and your mom's a waitress and your father, stepfather is a truck driver, you know most of that is bullshit, and they're shining you. But a little bit of it, you start wanting to believe and you start aiming. And so very young, and I remember inherently the shock of my mother because the teacher talked to her and she says you know we've got to get her in an advanced class this is a really smart little girl she should be planning to go to college and that was such a huge jump almost an unimaginable ambition that my mother was like college and she came home and she got a mayonnaise jar an empty clean mayonnaise jar and she dumped a share of her tip she was working waitress at a diner into that jar and she said you go into college baby we gonna start saving and I remember at one point that mayonnaise jar got about three quarters full of quarters uh, promptly emptied because you know there's always a crisis in poor people's lives Uh, but it was it was not so much the money it was the my mama believes in me it might be a possibility I could do something Um, and I ran with it I ran with it (laughs) oh wow I want to come back to your mother and about you your experience becoming a mother and and Mm -hmm. how if at all trauma carries through that relationship I'm sure it does but um let's talk about where you discovered writing first so um you ran with it and you found a way out and you had writing as your purpose but how did you discover that writing was a way out Well, um, you have to realize my mama was one of 11 children, and six of them were girls, and they reproduced at a rate that was phenomenal. So I have more cousins than God ever intended, and that means there is always a crying need for a babysitter. And if I was so smart and so grown up, I was going to be that babysitter. Not my choice, my aunt's choice, my mama's choice, Um, but I learned quickly I wasn't big enough or strong enough to slap those boys around, but I could tell a story. I could scare the piss out of them or, you know, make them think, wow, we could do that. I would make up these elaborate, amazing stories and they would sit open mouthed and for a moment be still. And anytime they weren't killing each other, I was winning. It was that was the beginning of it, the discovery that I could make up stories that people wanted to hear. And then South Carolina, you you know the motto of the South Carolina school system? Thank God for Mississippi. Because the only place that had worse schools was Mississippi. The school system in South Carolina sucked big time. But I had the grace of falling in to classes every now and again with a semi-decent teacher who would say, you understand that? 
have you read? And then they'd ask me something. And even if I had not read it, I'd lie and say I had, and then go run and read it. I was building my legend in part because it, it seemed to me that was the way out. I had to get them on my side. I needed help. <laughs> no question about it. <laughs> no. no. I, found I love really that. Teachers. Yeah. Almost made me want to be a teacher, except that I was not that fond of children. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you want children of your own? Um, no. And if not, at what point? No, neither did I. <laughs> Tell me more about not wanting children. I had too many cousins. I'm telling you, frankly, my aunt Dot had trust. I think she had nine kids, two sets of twins. They all thought my mama was pitiful because she only had three children. So there were just so many of them. And the children of working class families are violent. And they would, and watching and trying to control that violence seriously discouraged me from the whole prospect of motherhood. And then very early on, it dawned on me that I was a little different. <laughs> I didn't want a boyfriend. I wanted a girlfriend. Pretty much from about 11, 12 years old, I knew that. Um, I also knew that it would get me killed if I wasn't careful. So I was careful. Um, but a miracle happened. And it's one of them backhanded miracles. I'm not quite sure what he did. Um, because there were many stories over the years. But my stepfather did something, and he was arrested. Um, and we left the state of South Carolina the dead of night, running from him going to prison. Um, wound up in Florida. Two things. If South Carolina has one of the worst school systems in the country, Florida had a great school system. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they did is they test you. They tested me, and they're like, well, damn, bitch, you can, you can seemingly think, can you? Can you work hard? I can, I'm like, I can work hard. And I did. And school became, school became a lifeline. Still with all the issues of poverty. I don't know if you remember, but I remember being in school and they always had these book sales. You could buy paperbacks. I was so hungry for books, especially for books that weren't in the library. But you couldn't, I couldn't get them because we never had any money to spare. So I had to find ways to get money, um, and I was a devious and difficult child. <laughs> you want me to do your homework? You want me to help you out? I'll help you out. Let me borrow that book, or let me buy that book, and you pay for it. Um, pretty much from fifth, sixth, seventh grade, that's what I was doing. I was hustling. Um, hustling for books. Yeah. It, it's seriously exhausting to hustle at that level, that sustained level. And you need to remember, my stepfather never went away. And he was a violent man, and he beat us. Um, And we have two sisters. I love them dearly. But our relationships were shaped by the fact that if he was beating one of us, he wasn't beating another. And that does not encourage you toward kindness or generosity or love. Um, it, It pretty much broke us in terms of any kind of sisterhood. We didn't actually become friendly until we were all in our 20s and 30s. And even then we were careful because we knew things about each other that were frankly horrible. (laughs) That you don't want to, you don't want the world to know. Um, It meant that in the, in the midst of a huge working class family that strongly identified and in some ways protected each other, we got dragged off to Florida and became isolates, and we had nobody, and we did not have each other. And we had our mother, but our mother was exhausted, and very quickly she got cancer, and she was sick for 20 years. That does not, that does not provide us with a whole lot of help. We had to find ways to survive our stepfather and keep him off of us. Um, some of them were deliberate and devious. I still think it's a miracle my little sister didn't kill him. She had elaborate plans. Um, she once took pork chops and laid them in the sun because at school she learned about trichinosis. And she figured <laughs> she was going to poison him with a deadly pork chop. <laughs> and my mama discovered these pork chops up on the back porch. She said, what the fuck are you doing, girl? Somebody's going to eat this and die. And my sister's like, that's the idea. <laughs> what? Oh, God. <laughs> 
funny now. It wasn't funny then. Or it would no. be momentarily funny and then horrible. Yeah. Horrible. Because you know you're an evil person. You're ready to commit murder. That it is self-defense. You know, I was raised in the Baptist church. I was supposed to suffer and die. Ah! <laughs> Not my idea of a good time. No. no. Let's no. jump. Let's so jump. tell me. Oh, we're getting an echo here. Hold on just a second. Let's see. Did I move? Maybe. Let's. Oh, there. It's water. <laughs> Something happened. Okay. So, uh, so Dorothy, take me forward a little bit um, to, and I want to come back and we'll work our way ahead. What but is- bring me to when you decided that you did want to become a mother and um, and then we'll start working in the writing part, too. But tell me a bit about becoming a mother with all of this trauma, um, you know, especially between you and your mother and that relationship that, that was broken, as you say. Um, what That's made you eventually want to become a mother? You need to know that um, one of the gifts my stepfather gave me was gonorrhea. Oh, um, and it was untreated for years um, so that... By the time I was in my early 20s, um, I had a lot of medical issues and and discovered that I had massive scarring and massive infections and would never be able to conceive a child or carry, if I managed to conceive, not carry it to term. Um, and that was, frankly, no big loss um, because my view of raising, having children and raising them was scary and tragic. Um, I didn't want to birth a child to die or fall into my stepfather's hands. Um, mm-hmm. And I had won a National Merit Scholarship. I was going to college. I was this smart, mousy, creative, difficult girl. Um, and I was on that track to be just that and to do the best I could. And I wanted to understand what had happened to us. Um, this was before the beginnings of the women's movement. Um, so I went off to college to be an anthropologist, thinking that anthropology will explain it to me. <laughs> God save us. That was a slight error. Um, sort of right, but still an error. Um, and college was that escape. It was... I would meet women who wanted to have children, and we would have that conversation. And I would stop the conversation every time by saying, I can't have children. Um, when I met Alex, um, my partner of, Lord, 35 years, we've been busy. Who can keep track? Um, Alex told me um, that she wanted children. And my response immediately was, well, you can find somebody else to do that with. Um, I believe in open-ended relationships. Pick you up another one. <laughs> She'll do it with you. <laughs> um, and then after about five years, um, she raised the issue again because we were we're getting older. Um, and I did not feel like I had the right to block her from something that she genuinely wanted. And then there's that other snake mind. I don't know if you understand the concept of the snake mind. When you're raised poor and in violence and danger all the time, you develop, I developed what I call my snake mind, which is in any situation, I will pinpoint where the door is and how I get out. And I did that in relationships. Um, so my snake mind was thinking, you can have a child. I can always leave. I can walk away anytime. Which was, of course, <laughs> doesn't quite work when you're a romantic. And all writers are romantics. Um, so I said, all right, we can, we can think about this. We can look at this. Um, thinking all along, I can leave. Um, Life overtakes you. Life gives you a woman perfectly suited to be your life mate. Um, okay, she wants a child. Well, hell, I've done her harder things. <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> it's enormously complicated to not just birth a child, although the mechanics of all that are fairly straightforward and every dyke in the world knows how to use a turkey baster for Christ's sake. But the whole um, emotional matrix of becoming a mother, I didn't realize until Wolf was born that I had a big problem. Um, And that was 
having witnessed my mama be destroyed trying to be a good mother, um, I was afraid of the demands that motherhood would put on you. Now, I knew Alex was strong and tough and smart and hard-nosed and perfectly capable of dealing with difficult situations. She could deal with me. She could deal with anything. But I wasn't, um, I wasn't prepared for, I wasn't prepared for how tender it made me, how fragile it made my emotional stuff. Um, I wasn't prepared to wake up in the night with that baby crying and think, I gotta keep this kid alive. I gotta smooth this kid's way. I gotta make sure he never even understands the kinds of things I have survived. That was complicated and long. But like I said, he's 29. He's six foot one. <laughs> you know, you put him in the house with a southern cook, he's going to get big. <laughs> it's been um, one revelation after another. But all mothers know this. The process is once it starts, you got a baby, you're fully invested. Or you're not. I have known women who have walked away. I don't think I'm capable of walking away. <laughs> He's a lucky son of a bitch. <laughs> he sounds like it, yes. <laughs> um, how did writing intersect with this time? Did you use writing in any way to kind of work mm -hmm. through the tenderness that you're mentioning? I started writing when I was nine, ten years old. I started writing stories, um, and I fell in the way of a couple of good teachers. You know, the kind of teacher that, you know, we're all going to learn these words. You're going to learn to spell. In the context of learning to spell, everybody is going to write a one-page story. And yeah. I remember um, the first one-page story I wrote, which was a complete fantasy um, and, you know, a kind of a powerful girl's runaway story. I vaguely remember it. But then it was it was every week write another story which is, I think, the greatest training ground a writer can get every week. And so as I went on, um, the material I had was my life, and I started writing closer and closer to my life, uh, but always in a fantasy realm in which, um, you know, girls could be powerful, girls could run away, girls could do the amazing things, girls could go live in the girls' world and, you know, have crutches, because I read a lot of science fiction, and they always had these elaborate and wonderful ways for women to have children and not be destroyed in the process of having children. So I fantasized that and wrote some of that. But I was never the mother. Um, I was always the outside observer. Um, except for the fact that, meanwhile, I was babysitting continuously for my innumerable not-that-bright cousins. I'm, I hate to say this, but I got some of the dumbasses <laughs> you have ever met. I mean, sweet boys and Tender-hearted girls that just could not seem to add three numbers and get the same number twice. It was amazing. <laughs> and I had to keep them somewhat distracted and from killing each other. I developed a skill at that. I think that, um, well, you were at Ten House. You saw me. I know how to hold an audience. Yes. I learned to hold an audience at Ten with my cousins, who were a whole lot more dangerous than all the baby writers at Ten House. <laughs> And who knew me, so they weren't immediately scared or tamed in any way. <laughs> I think that's great training for a writer. You know, um, start writing stories to save your own life. And then there's the other little piece of it. Writing stories to save your own life means you will write close to your life. You will write, you will write your cousins. You will write your aunts. You will write your complicated, dangerous, wonderful uncles. <laughs> yeah. And then you will go looking for the other people who are doing the kind of writing. You know, the writing is a community. You know, my writer friends, writers with whom I have been trading work for what is now 40, 50 years, are vital to me. The stories they write that I read, every time I read one of Jewel's stories, it resonates and I want to write a story to give back to her. Um, Nicola Griffith, when I discovered Nicola, I just was like, oh, shit, the bitch is taking what I didn't do and done more. It was, it's so, 
it's hard to explain to non-writers the sense of family that develops between people engaged in the same enterprise. Yeah. And this is a way, in an elaborate, complicated way, it is a form of mothering to write a story, uh, to write a story that witnesses something that you barely survived or barely understand. Um, some of the greatest stories I've ever read were written by people trying to understand or figure something out. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I've been rereading a lot of Ursula Le Guin lately because um, I miss her dreadfully, but also because she was such a great writer. <laughs> and I can slide from her short stories to her novels to the essays and the book she wrote on writing. Just mm-hmm. you want to live up to that. You want to match that. You want to share in that. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of listeners here and myself included feel that way about you and your your work. So, you know, I understand that. <laughs> it's a little bit um, like having children. <laughs> I do that. Yeah. All the baby writers come and say, Mommy, read this. Okay. <laughs> I love that baby writing. Please. <laughs> Um, tell me a little bit more about writing motherhood. And mm. and so you, you said on the, at the beginning you were on the outskirts of the motherhood, right, in, in your especially science fiction pieces. Um, at what point, if ever, did you move motherhood, did you move into a more central role as mother in your work? I'm or did you? in a butch femme relationship, um, and that meant that, in terms of our household, I was mom, mm-hmm. um, and Alex is closer to daddy, <laughs> even though she was the mother. <laughs> yeah. But there is something inherent in the process of mothering um, that has, that shares a great deal with story making, um, because in some way you are attempting to shape the world in the mind of a child. That's a lot um, simpler and easier than writing for a larger audience or a grown-up audience. Children are just like little open mouth. You can just fill their little cups. <laughs> you can fill it with a bunch of nonsense, too. But Wolf was... Um, Wolf took me to a place that it's almost... It's difficult to talk about because... Um, you have to understand... From a very early age, I became a hard ass. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I limited my emotional responses and I had reined in any feelings of tenderness or love because they were just too dangerous. Um, I watched not just my stepfather, but even my uncles, who I loved, manipulate the women in their lives that way. Um, so I was... I kept myself at a distance from that kind of tenderness, the mother, mothering syndrome. Um, you need, you need some sense of security to be able to let yourself inhabit the vulnerability of being a mother. Mm-hmm. Because it's not just your skin at risk, everything that touches your child cuts your the heart. It's, um, yeah. it's a level of vulnerability and tenderness that I inherently resisted and rejected. And it is very, very sneaky. Very sneaky. Um, you put that child in your arms and you look down and this is a completely dependent creature. Mm-hmm. You fuck up, they will be damaged forever. And I was hyper-consciousness of that. Because I had seen my aunts fuck up, not intentionally, but just in states of exhaustion or in desperate straits, and their kids paid the price. I was deeply afraid of that. And I love Alex and have loved her now for, holy fuck, 40 years. (laughs) You have to remember, we are, we were always non-monogamous fuck-arounds, but even so. You know, a long time. <laughs> I did not ever want to. I did not want to fail her or our child. Yeah. Never mind it. You know, 
by the time Bastard was published and I was trying to write another novel, you have to deal with what happens when novels are published and you compete for major prizes, even though you don't believe in competition. It's that the reporters show up and baby writers show up and interviewers show up and they ask difficult, complicated questions. Sometimes you have not even thought of these questions and they ask you something and you're like, shit, I got to worry about that too. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so there was a good five, six years there when I was just off my feet, just barely balancing, barely managing, trying to keep this baby alive. <laughs> How did you do all of those things? And I, we talk a lot on the show about balance, and we've kind of come to think that maybe there's no such thing as no, no balance. balance. No, there's no balance. It's moment by moment. You do the best you can. You fail. You forgive yourself or not, and keep moving. Seems to me you're always in motion, and children are always in motion, mm-hmm. and their demands are immediate. I was a, I was shocked by that. I had never been that. I had never been a I so loved my mother, and I so understood that she was just barely hanging on because she was sick. She was exhausted. She always worked, always. I don't think my mother slept past 5 a.m. any day of my life. Just the sheer exhaustion of her level of focus was like a warning sign. Don't go there. (laughs) You'll lose your life. (laughs) It won't be your life anymore. It'll be the baby's life. Writers have to develop a certain degree of selfishness in order to get the work done. And <laughs> when we when we moved to this house, and the, the guy who owned this house had a little off outside building where he he was a contractor and he had his office in this tiny little room. Um, and I moved out there to write, you know, trying to write a second novel. And by the time Wolf was two or two and a half, he would walk out there, go to the door beat on the door with his fist and yell, you don't love me, which let me just say, well, fuck you up. Yes. <laughs> it greatly interrupts the process of concentration and writing. <laughs> yeah. I think I took some residencies purely to get away and get some work done. <laughs> yes. I've heard others say the same thing. Just getting yeah. away from the, the home is a good yeah. way to do it. Yeah. yeah you know, that child had the largest collection of Tonka trains you've ever seen because I'd get guilty off in some other place and I'd go find a kid's store and buy another goddamn train. <laughs> you know, the little bitty wooden ones? I thought those were so cute. And they were all stuff I knew nothing about. We never had toys. We never had anything like that, you know. Um, we were immensely creative because we had to be. And here I birthed this child, and for at least a couple of years there, I had cash, and we could buy Tonka trains. <laughs> we got spoiled. Fortunately, he recovered, even though I'm not sure I did. <laughs> what does he think of your work? Has he read your books? Yeah. Yeah. Eventually, yeah. I didn't let him for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, He thinks I'm a genius and it's a pain in the ass. He thinks it's a pain in the ass. And he's right. It's very hard to be uh, the child of someone as driven and focused as I have been most of my life. Um, It's been very, very difficult for him, especially since he is not driven and focused. (laughs) Does he aspire to be or is it more? So where where does he feel? Oddly enough, um, at different times in the last decade, particularly, he has started writing. Um, we've come to an agreement that I won't read anything, um, that he has to have his own place to do that. Um, yeah. And like all of the kids in this area, kids, anybody under 30, uh, and God, anybody under 40 at this point, they're all gamers. So they live in gaming worlds. I have, I will not. I have nothing to do with that. I don't want to know about it. I want to keep it all at a distance. So I don't care about World of Warcraft or I don't even know all the games anymore. I played, I did play Rage, which was a game he bought me, which is a game in which you're a giant monkey that goes through tearing down buildings. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> Just knocking down buildings was my idea of a great video game. I haven't played it though in more than 
huh? 15 years probably. But he started writing in that kind of world. And he has a whole network of friends, some of whom are writers and they share stuff. But that's, that is private. Mm-hmm. I only see what he wants to show me and he don't want to show me much. I think the boy, he wants his own world and I give it to him. Happily. <laughs> so how do you feel about um, his, about the, the tension that you are alluding to where he, so where you say it was a little difficult for him sometimes when you were very driven and very ambitious? I think uh, that definitely resonates with me. My daughter's five and I'm like, what will she think when she's 20, 30 and she looks back and I was so focus on what I wanted like well she thinks that's a good thing I don't know what do you think well that isn't exactly my experience what I've seen with Wolf is that he feels um, less than adequate because he is not driven mm-hmm. he doesn't have that uh, push um, yeah. and it's a whole different emotional matrix he's not you have to remember that some of my drive and ambition comes out of damage um, and we worked really hard that he never knew damage in that way. But, you know, life will mess you up anyway. So he's had enough difficult experiences that he has a big complicated matrix of his own. But he does not. I think he feels. No, I know because we've talked about it. He doesn't feel that he's as talented or good or strong. Mm-hmm. All those words that are. And I'm like. That is you're in your own life and you're a boy and. You live in a world that is completely different. Um, yeah. Trying to reassure him that he is sufficient in and of himself. It's almost, it's very hard to give kids that sense. Yeah. And it just tears me up when I see him in despair at his own, because he'll be trying to write and, you know, writing is, I believe we lose more people to writing than ever we ever see. <laughs> It is actually emotionally um, complicated and painful, especially when you are not as good as you want to be or you think you're not as good as you want to be. And, of course, he has terrible taste. (laughs) (laughs) Most boys do. It's true. (laughs) They always want to write warrior stories. (laughs) Yep. And he was like, I know he showed me something one time and it's a warrior story. And he says, what do you think I should do? And I said, break both his legs. And he looked at me with horror. And I'm like, you ain't got no reason for him to be ambitious or doing anything. Break his legs. He'll get some ambition. Um, and he wouldn't talk to me for a long time. <laughs> I still think it was good advice. Um, but, you know, he doesn't understand the matrix of plot. <laughs> And character, adversity, character is made by adversity. Or this might be my bias because I was raised in adversity. I don't know how these happy middle-class kids ever get anything done. They got no motivation. And they're constantly trying to manufacture motivation. I think that, um, and I've worked with enough young writers, that I know you can manufacture motivation. You can come up with your own purpose, your own reason for doing what you're doing, but they don't have the immediate desperate desire that I was given at a very young age. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, <laughs> a backhanded advantage. If it don't kill you, it'll make you stronger. That's that Nietzsche shit. I don't believe in that. Maybe. Dorothy, what, what motivates you now? Are you still motivated by that desperate mm-hmm. desire to escape? Or is it, is it shipping? No, um, it's not the same desperate desire to escape. Um, but it is a desperate desire that people understand. It's astonishing to me that as a culture, as a people, we still do not understand how, how desire works. Um, we don't seem to have a social concept of what, in fact, the struggle is like for those of us who come, who begin with nothing or who begin with less than nothing. Um, 
We don't have it as a cultural ideal. We used to. Um, and it's one of the reasons that I got scholarships and went off to college and was successful in that whole process because when I was a teenager, there was this backhanded encouragement for working class kids. You know, you were supposed to try to get a scholarship, try to do something, try to achieve something. Um, now that I'm living in the middle class for a while, you people are pitiful. You haven't got any reason to do anything. Um, you know, I don't even, un- I don't understand people who don't wake up afraid now and again. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Um, and as a culture, I don't find everyone does that so much. Um, I still wake up terrified. I still wake up from bad dreams where I'm trapped and helpless in the hands of, what is that phrase, in the hands of an angry God? Well, that was my stepfather, an angry God. And I have seen them and know them. I grew up in the South. I had angry gods on every corner. You could see them coming, and the only thing you could do if you were a girl was try to avoid them. And I know that surviving them is a little bit more complicated. Yeah. Dorothy, let's go back to, like, the middle area that we skipped over. One of us should be in control of this because I'm just sitting in my kitchen trying to keep up. What do you mean? No, you're, you're, you're awesome. So let's go back to the period um, in which you were editing some of the most groundbreaking feminist and lesbian and gay publications and your mm-hmm. advocacy and your drive there. Because you're alluding to it a little bit. I think. Yeah. Um, after I graduated from college, I did not get uh, I wanted to go to graduate school, but I had no money. And. I got admitted to a number of different colleges in the Northeast, but they didn't give me enough money. And I had no money. Literally. I didn't even own a coat. You can't go north without a coat if you're living in Florida. <laughs> um, and I wound up, um, I can't even, I wound up in Tallahassee for a while. And this was the early women's movement. And it was, talk about exhilaration. We were revolutionaries and we were determined about it. You know, God damn it, there was shit to be done. The world had to change. And that is exactly the emotional stance of all of the women that I worked with. And I was like 22. And in in many ways, um, there's a way in which if you're a smart kid who wins scholarships and goes into that lane of college scholarships and you are actually living in a kind of rarefied adventure. Ad, ad, I mean, my cousins had to get jobs. I went to college. My cousins worked in laundries and factories. I went to college. I won scholarships. That means that I'm in this rarefied world. And it is, it's really sneaky because it will persuade you that you belong there. But you don't. And you can make one mistake and fall out of that network. Um And that's pretty much some of what happened. In Tallahassee, I looked around and realized that I could spend the rest of my life working for the Social Security Administration, which was the first real job I got. It was a a ridiculous. SSI was coming. You know what SSI is? Supplemental Security Income. It was basically um, a national welfare program. Um, And I got hired by the Social Security Administration to help administer, to work in a local office in Tallahassee. Well, let me just say, working for the Social Security Administration is a hell of a tedious life. So I became, I got very active in local politics and feminist politics and at the at Florida State and all of that whole community. And, and we, and then we formed a lesbian feminist collective. <laughs> and I got involved with an effort to create a waitresses union and I got busted for that. It's, they found ways to break that pretty fast. When you start hitting them in the pocketbook, they, the above ground culture comes down hard. And I think I scared the pee out of the people at the university. I know I did um, <laughs> because I started volunteering to teach uh, feminist political theory. And they were like, well, that's a great idea. Wait, you're serious? <laughs> Very deadly serious. <laughs> and then I moved into this enormous building with 12 other lesbian feminists, and we formed a collective, and we started a bookstore, and we advanced the waitress union, and then we were marching on the Capitol, and we were marching on the 
Honey, it was a couple of years of no sleep, a lot of fucking, and a hell of a lot of marching in the streets. It was wonderful. That's really wonderful. And nearly killed me. (laughs) (laughs) And I can't even begin to explain to young people what an exhilarating adventure it was to feel like you could make a difference. You could really change how things were done in this country. Um, It was... It was wonderful and terrible, and it, I got, I pretty much wore myself out. I had a lot of sex. Mm. <laughs> Let me just say, political organizing is not an obstruction to good bedtime activity. <laughs> and in fact, be an instrumental encouragement. You look really sexy marching with, marching with a sign in your hand. <laughs> but then, um, we got into some trouble, and guy came and, shot our front door down with a shotgun and we were, I was living in a three of us went off and found a lesbian household and he came and got pissed off at us um I still don't remember entirely why he got pissed off but he fired a shotgun into the front door and it's like okay we gotta move <laughs> we gotta move and then um I don't even oh yeah we brought uh Charlotte Bunch and Rita Mae Brown to Tallahassee to speak and Charlotte said, come up to D.C. and I'll, you know, help you get settled. Um, and she got me a gig at, uh, George Washington University, basically assisting in her class, uh, that she was teaching there. And then I went to work at Quest, which was a, a early feminist magazine. And Quest was wonderful. Um, but it was me and <laughs> Bev Fisher. We were the working class girls and all the rest were upper middle class professors at various universities around the D.C. metropolitan area. It got uh, got big and complicated, and I was discovering that I was working class and that there was a politics of the working class. And I didn't want to be, I wasn't a communist. I was a revolutionary feminist with communist tendencies. Um, and that got complicated, got arrested a couple of times for marching and demonstrating and and all along, I was writing bad poetry, bad poetry, and then bad short stories, and then a little better short stories. I never got to be that good a poet um, because I focused on stories and storytelling. And then I got this notion to write Bastard Out of Carolina, um, which started with some of my lived experience, but then moved away pretty quickly. But really what I wanted to do was put a working class family at the center which is what I managed to achieve. Um, But it takes writing, learning to, you know, you're a writer. Writing is a spiritual practice, but it is absolutely vital that you do the work. And the work is tedious and repetitive and requires a level of discipline that I could never have imagined when I began. It's just relentless what it demands of you um the nakedness on the page and you can write bad poetry and be naked on the page but if you try to write a story in which you are stealing people that you love and recreating them as characters for me that seemed to be an act of enormous responsibility so putting my mother into bastard out of carolina almost broke my ability to be a writer. I loved my mother so much and I I knew what she had the price she had paid to raise us and care for us. Um and I was so indebted to her for everything that she had managed to achieve that it was very hard to write a mother who failed so utterly um in that story. But that was a story I knew from the inside out and needed to tell. Yeah. Um but I got slowly better, slowly. Um, and it's hard to work with baby writers and tell them, you know, it'll take you a decade before you know what you can do. Yeah. And you got to work relentlessly even to achieve that. Um, yeah. I put a couple of decades in. <laughs> then I discovered publishing. You should know, I also was at all along working with um, a bunch of small magazines, a bunch of small presses. I was part of COSMEP, which was the committee with all these radical lesbian and gay and 
revolutionary editors and publishers and small press people. Small press people are just the best because, you know, they're not in it for the cash. Mm-hmm. It's not like big publishing, which is about money. Small press publishing is about changing the world, telling stories that have not been told, honoring the people that you most care about and that are most at risk in the world. I I think I didn't sleep a lot for a couple of decades there. I got a lot done. I believe it. Tell me a little bit more. Um, stick with writing about your mother for a second and just about mm-hmm. writing a woman character who fails, who's a mother. Mm-hmm. I feel like that is still um, so risky for some reason, right? To write not only a woman character who fails, but a mother who fails because the stakes are so high. Mm-hmm. Um, how, did, how was the reception of readers to that, to a character who's a mother? who fails at mothering in many ways. There's a story in Trash um, called Don't Tell Me You Don't Know. Um, and it's a character who is a roughly a version of me. Um, and in this story, I imagined one of my aunts, specifically my Aunt Dorothy, for whom I'm named, coming to Tallahassee, um, to the lesbian feminist collective where I was living. And I put this in the story. And she comes because, in fact, um, the character's mother is having a breakdown. Um, and she is having a breakdown in part because of conversations that they have had on the phone, mother-daughter conversations, in which, for the first time, the mother is realizing what has happened to her girl and how enormously she has failed to protect her. Um, And the aunt shows up and says, I don't care about all that. She's your mother. You can't just cut her out. You can't just let it go. You got to call her. You got to talk to her. You got to get her through this. And in fact, it's about reversing the mother role so that the daughter has to mother the mother or the mother's going to, the mother is crashing and burning. That's essentially the, the crux of the story. But in the course of the interaction with the aunt, the aunt tells her stories that she only vaguely knows pieces of. Um, and and it's about her failures as a mother. Um, and so it's like, it was as close as I could come to putting my mama on the page. Even though in a lot of the stories in Trash and a lot of the stories I've written, you think you're seeing my mother. But in that story, I put her broken on the page. And my mother broke. About that, I have no. And I helped break her. And it's easy to break a mother. You simply show her how she has not saved you. How she has failed to protect you. Um, if I look at my son and and I have discovered ways in which I failed to protect him because I didn't understand all the stuff he was going through. That is the most horrific experience a mother has. You know, with all good intentions in the world, I fucked up and my child has suffered. Um, that's the back story of a lot of the stories in Trash because I was working through that stuff. Yeah. I always found story to be a place where I could understand things that in my everyday life I couldn't. But I could make up people living a kind of parallel life in a story and out of my own grief and shame make it make sense. Yeah. And in that story I worked myself around to a kind of redemption. Yeah. They got it me all teary here, Dorothy. I'm like <laughs> crying in the background. I mean, I loved my aunts, and they were just destroyed. You know, I mean, they had, God, you can't give birth to ten children and not be fucked up physically and emotionally. You can't love men who crash cars and shoot each other and not be fucked up. They were fucked up and still, still resilient, still stubborn and determined and Stronger, stronger than I was, realizing how strong my aunts had to be 
purely because of the meanness of the world. It ain't helping me these days to watch the politics of the world and the place we have come to in which the suffering of working class and poor people is completely discounted. And the only people that mattered are the rich. No, <laughs> I'm not a communist. I'm a revolutionary. Take those suckers down. I want to see Mitch McConnell broke and living by the side of the road in a truck. <laughs> I'd be I'm here sorry. for that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a working class thing. We like vengeance, even if we don't take it that often. <laughs> no. So Justice. this sounds like... It kind of feeds into, you were telling me before the interview, and I won't ask you too many questions about your work in progress, but um, it sounds like this dovetails a little bit with it. You were saying that you had to revisit the, the work in the post-Trump, yes. hopefully the post-Trump era, right? Yes. You'd be, the astonishing thing is that you would think with my life experience, I wouldn't be such a candy-ass, <laughs> easy-going I don't even know how to talk about it. I have a tendency to believe in the inherent goodness of people. Um, I think that comes from my mama. Um, and I tend to, but I've run into enough evil and enough violence to know that um, that too is part of life and suffering and struggling and making things happen anyway. Um, that's, that is in fact what is the glory of life. Standing up when your knees are broken. No. Keeping going when you can't, don't think you can keep going. And I started also um, in this new book, I thought, you're 72 years old, bitch. Why don't you try writing out of a 72-year-old mentality instead of a constantly a young one? Um, and that meant someone who was reflecting on her life. Um, of course, you got to give them plot, so you got to have terrible shit happen. Uh, and, and it does have um, it has a trick <laughs> I don't believe in tricks but um, I wrote a short story which started all of this book in the short story um, this woman is doesn't know what's happening she's <laughs> But she finds herself um, through no choice and no nothing that she intends to do, falling back in time um, and having to look at the world differently. Um, so that starting from that mentality of someone who is broken and aged and having a really hard, hard struggle, um, just slips through a crack in the world and it's very it meant that I got to look at my life um, but also in the life of this country and what's happened in the last 50 years because I take her uh, from 72 to 24 and that's um, that meant everything had to shift I'm having a lot of fun when I get it get to writing but life has been a little bit of an issue in the last year <laughs> Yeah, like <laughs> to evacuate again, um, and that really screwed up. If you are a writer and you have great quantities of books and manuscripts and manuscripts in process, I mean, all these kids that I work with, you know, my son's friends that come over and hang out here, they all have their little laptops and they're all their stuff is in one place. One little laptop carries it all. Child, I got files. I got stacks of drafts and. You know, I worked in hard copy. They don't do hard copy. <laughs> and I cannot transition to putting everything into the ether. So, you know, there's a bunch of boxes in the barn <laughs> at this point. And I find myself walking around looking at the drafts of manuscripts and thinking, it's all in your head, bitch. Just take a breath. You know, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> oh. I could keep talking to you for the rest of the night, but I think take a breath, bitch, is like a good place to end here. <laughs> Dorothy, thank you so much for joining You're me. Welcome. It's been You're an welcome. absolute pleasure. Stick around for a second.
Oh, oh, just stick around for a second afterwards so I can say goodbye. But um, but I just want to thank you again for for coming out, for taking the time, especially as you're preparing to possibly evacuate. And like, you know, live in a redwood forest. That was. I think that might have been an error in judgment. <laughs> well, we'll be hope we'll be praying for you, everybody. Thank keep you your fingers you. crossed for Dorothy. And thank you so much, Dorothy. I'll see you in a second. Okay. And thank you all for joining me tonight. Um, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Um, as Kristen Barrow Keeve says in the comments there, she pretty much laughed through her tears as you saw I did as well. So thank you so much for joining me. And I hope you'll come back in two weeks for Ramona Asabel. And in the meantime, please consider becoming a patron or patroness of the podcast if you enjoy the episodes. And thank you so much. I hope to see you all next time.